This is Fintech Cappuccino, your Saturday morning podcast with a pinch of espresso on the why and how of Fintech. The show is hosted by Brian van Wachem, CEO of RedSnap, and I'm Connie Dorstein, founding partner of Bankify. Hi, it's Connie. Hi, Connie, with Brian. Hi. Hey, Connie, do you remember that in the previous podcast, Mark Buitek tipped us about an investigative reporter that wrote a book about kleptocracy called Moneyland? Of course I do. I sort of scooped it up and read it in one fell swoop during the holiday. Yeah, me too. And I was stunned by it. Um, And I was so stunned that I contacted the writer, Oliver Ballow, and invited him to the podcast. And guess what? He wants to join and tell us about his motivations to investigate financial crime and his book Moneyland. Would you like that? Oh, of course I would. It was top of my wish list. That's superb news. And you know what, Brian? Whilst you've got a man on the phone, um, just check with him whether we can also talk about the current, you know, Corona, COVID crisis timeframe, whether, you know, the, the, the rich are getting richer or whether they're suffering as well. I mean, sure, 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 sure. Let's go. I'll contact him and uh, let's go for him. Yeah. All right. Speak to you soon. Okay. Bye. Talk later. Bye. Welcome, Oliver. Why did you choose this music? <laughs> um, well, it was for Saturday morning, and it's nice to. Um, uh, normally, I have a bit of a lie-in on a Saturday. Uh, the kids leave us alone and they play Minecraft, and then it's just nice to start the day with something a little bit upbeat to, um, you know, get the blood moving while I make everyone a bit of breakfast. So uh, I like ska music, and um, and the specials are a particular favourite. Hey, and and uh, what do you normally do on a Saturday morning? He just told us. Cook breakfast for the family. <laughs> well, when I finish making breakfast for the boys, uh, when I finish making breakfast for the boys, I don't know. I suppose I try and think of something which is a bit different to do every, which is a bit different to what we do every other day. Which, considering that every other day we're stuck at home, it, it it's a little bit hard. But you know, try and think of an interesting place to go or an interesting bit of the river to go and swim in or something. I mean, it's um, you know, life isn't very exciting right now. Oliver Bullough studied modern history at Oxford University before moving to Russia, where he lived for over seven years. Writing for local newspapers and then for Reuters news agency, he reported from Russia, Georgia, Ukraine and Kyrgyzstan. Oliver wrote three books so far. First one was Let Our Fame Be Great, a travel and history book which described his journey to find the scattered peoples of the mountains. It was shortlisted for the Ober Prize in the UK and won won the Cornelius Ryan Award in the US. His second book, The Last Man in Russia, was published to brilliant reviews in 2013. And today we're going to talk to him about his latest book, which was published in 2018 called Moneyland, in which we join the investigative journalist Oliver Bellow on a journey into Moneyland, the secret country of the lawless, stateless, super-rich. Oliver lives in Wales with his wife and son. Oliver, you're way too interesting to waste our time on chit-chatting. Let's dive immediately into the subject. We all read about financial crime in the newspapers. The robbery of the Malaysian pension fund 1MDB by the Prime Minister was a major one, and Isabel dos Santos from Angola another. Not to mention the money laundering scandals at Standard Chartered, Wachovia, and most recently, Danske Bank. All big scandals that were eventually discovered and made public. 
Now, in your opinion, as an investigated, uh, investigative reporter, what was or is the most notorious or shady money laundering or financial crime you discovered in the last decade? Um, I mean, I've I have a particular interest in financial crimes with a kind of slight comedy aspect because it makes it easy for me to tell the story. Um, I find telling stories that are just very depressing uh, is a little bit uh, difficult uh, to interest people in. So I suppose the one which I remain uh, most proud of is a story about a house in London on Harley Street, which is a house in London, a street in London that is uh, very famous for top end healthcare that was being used as a base for shell companies involved in the most astonishing array of frauds. Um, I mean, so many frauds that I had a 4,000 word article. I'd, I didn't even have room to scratch the surface with the sheer volume of frauds. I, I came across it first because it was the address where the president of Ukraine chose to keep his shell companies. But um, but on top of that, there were, you know, just, I mean, just everything, you know, VAT fraud, uh, various tax frauds, uh, confidence tricks, uh, just money laundering, everything. So I suppose that's the one that I'm I'm the proudest of, and and it was also one of the first you know big corruption investigations I did, and I suppose I I still believed that that um that I might change something by exposing money laundering, um, when actually it didn't make any difference at all. Nothing changed. Um, in fact, weirdly, uh, another journalist did a very similar investigation last year on on the same, similar topic, covering the same ground, and nothing has changed again. So it it's um. It, it was when I was a little bit more naive and I didn't realise that actually actually, no one really cares. Yeah. Um, you moved to um, Russia when you studied at Oxford. I was intrigued by that. What, what made you move there? Was it like just for study purposes or were you already interested in sort of the, the complex um, ties between uh, countries, money streams, etc.? No, I, I, I wish I was. No, I, I'd always been interested in Russia. Um, I think partly because I was a big fan of Tintin as a child and he was always having interesting adventures in Eastern Europe. And also partly because when I was a teenager, Russia just seemed to have the most interesting politics and history. You know, there was always stuff going on. Um, so I was obsessed by Russia in general. I'm a I'm a boy from a from mid Wales um, where not very much seems to happen. And I, I really like the idea of going somewhere where a lot happens. So, no, I just moved to Russia um in the late 1990s, um, not for any particular glorious goal. I had a very good ska music scene, so I enjoyed that. And then I became a journalist by accident, really. Um, and then it turned out there was a lot to write about. And so yeah. that's where I stayed. And late 90s was also historically, obviously, a very, very interesting time in Russia. Yeah, it was. Actually, I moved to Russia uh, about 10 days after Vladimir Putin became prime minister, um, which I didn't realise at the time, obviously. I mean, no one did. It was a, a really historic moment. So I, I've actually never been to Russia when he hasn't been in charge, which is pretty amazing since I've been going. I lived there for ages and I've been going backwards and forwards for, what, 20, more than 20 years. And, and, um, and yet he's been in charge for that entire period, which is pretty extraordinary. Um, it's, it's been a time of, of pretty dramatic transformation. So yeah, it's been a super interesting time to be there. And, and um, it was a very fortunate decision, 
for me to decide to move there. I would think so. Well, we have something in common there because I keep studying Russia as well and a rich history. And I always say when, whenever we celebrate our liberations, I say, you know, don't just think, don't just thank the Americans, thank the Russians too. But back to your book, Moneyland. Um, the book Moneyland, for the listeners, is very much about all the things uh, Oliver just spoke about. It is about the hyper-rich who live in a country that they create themselves. That's, I think, you know, I'm going to ask you about this. Um, it's a country, it's not a country, it's not a legal jurisdiction. I always combine it by saying it's the land where the rich live, consume, but don't contribute. And... Um, so you called that country Moneyland. How did you actually come up with that word? Is it? A, is it? Did it... <laughs> um, I, it was because I, I was in uh, Ukraine following the revolution in 2014, and um, obviously the president had fled. Many of his friends had fled, but but all of their palaces and uh, various luxury properties had been left behind. So I've been exploring quite a lot of these properties just because it was interesting and kind of funny um and i one day i happened to remark to a friend of mine anton that i found it extraordinary that the ukrainians had allowed their had allowed their presidents to be so corrupt you know how, how i think i said you know how did you let him get away with it um at which point he he, he got a little bit angry with me and, and pointed out that the um that they hadn't known that he had so much property because all the property was is the way he put it, the property was in England, by which he meant that it was owned via English shell companies, which it all was. Um, and and so I, I sort of researched that. I was I didn't know anything about corruption. I mean, I'd, you know, I'd been targeted by police officers on the street, but I didn't know anything about how corruption works and how money laundering works. It was all totally close to me. Um, so I went and researched that and, and found it absolutely extraordinary that, that you know, Britain supposedly... A, you know, civilized rule of law jurisdiction should be being used to in this way. I mean, I was very naive. It was all it, remarkable, and um, but it occurred to me that that it wasn't right to say that the that the palaces were in England, as he said they were, um, because they're obviously not. They're in Ukraine. You can visit them, but they're not in Ukraine either. So if they're not in Ukraine and they're not in England, then where are they? Um, and I said to myself, just as a joke, well, they're in Moneyland. It was just my little joke to myself, but. But then the more I studied corruption and the more I came to understand it, the more I realised that actually the concept of Moneyland as, a, as a, a kind of legal country, which is only accessible to people who can afford the entrance fee, is actually a really useful concept to explain why it's so hard to, to tackle financial crime and the beneficiaries of financial crime. You know, why once money has been stolen and put in Moneyland, in inverted commas, it's so hard to find it again because it's essentially um, protected by, you know, by what is, you know, to all intents and purposes, a, a separate country. Um, you know, and, and, and I just found it a very useful metaphor just for myself. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't one I shared with anyone at all. It was just, it was just to help me understand what was happening. Um, and then I was talking to my wife, who, who's... And, and and I was, you know, talking about corruption. And I said, I like to think of it as a, as a separate country called Moneyland. And she found it really helpful. I thought, well, if she finds it helpful, maybe other people will find it helpful and, and started using it with other people. And then, you know, lo and behold, you know, I thought, well, you know, why not? It's probably quite a good title for a book. So Absolutely. there we go. It, but it wasn't it, it wasn't a deliberate. Um, very few things I do ever are deliberate, um, to be honest. It, it was an entirely accidental process. And um 
And it was, yeah, something that started out because it was helpful to me. And then I think it turned out to be quite helpful to other people as well. Yeah. And what's interesting is it's so well defined sort of the contradictions because on the one hand, uh, it is a country without borders. And on the other hand, it has a huge wall uh, around it that protects the people who are in it and makes it inaccessible to others. So, and and um, one of the things that I wanted to ask you, having read the book, it's very obvious, you know, that the, the, the kleptocrats, they steal, they evade, they spend... Uh, the effect is clear that it has on the economy. Well, it's, I say it's clear, it's very obvious, but it's probably badly understood. The cause is greed. The solution is very hard. And that's what I want to say. Like, if, if you were in an ideal position, what could you possibly do about it? Because on the one hand, there's globalization. We have national laws that protect people. You know, what would you see as a possible solution in an ideal world? Well... I think there's there's two aspects to that question. Um, one is about enforcing laws that we already have. Um, we have plenty of laws against money laundering already, um, uh, plenty of laws against all aspects of financial crime, um, but we just don't enforce them. You know, we are, uh, particularly in Europe, by which I'm still including the UK, um, we are extremely bad at enforcing laws against financial crime. Um, and, you know, only a fraction of a percentage of the money that gets stolen every year is is, is ever recovered. Um, that's whether that money is stolen by kleptocrats or by fraudsters or, or financial criminals of all kinds. Um, so that's part of it. Um, but another part is about whether we need new laws. And I think that, that, um, that the key problem is about the lack of financial transparency or the lack of transparency of ownership of property. Um, we have got into this curious situation where companies, you know, limited companies, which were never intended to be used for this purpose, are used essentially to facilitate identity fraud. You can pretend to be an investor, a legitimate investor, when you're not, um, just by owning your property via a limited company. And, and, and it's it's so absurd if you think about what a limited company was designed to be used for. They were designed to encourage entrepreneurs by limiting the risk that they faced when investing in a new project. It, you know, a limited company is a form of insurance in which your risk is 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 covered by the rest of society. And, and the idea that that can be anonymous, you know, that you can essentially have an anonymous insurance policy is, is ridiculous. Um, it's such an open invitation to fraud. And I find that as soon as you explain to that to, to anyone, they realise the absurdity inherent in, in an anonymous company. So we, we need to abolish anonymous companies, that they, they, they can't exist. Anonymous, not just companies, anonymous structures of all kinds, whether that's, you know, limited partnerships or, or trusts or foundations, whatever they, you know, an, anonymity needs to be in almost all purposes abolished. And I think that would have make an absolute huge difference if I talk to, you know, people I, you know, friends who work in law enforcement, you know, the, the months of work they have to put in just to figure out who owns a property is, is ridiculous. It shouldn't, it shouldn't, it shouldn't take more than, a, a, you know, two minutes to find out who owns a house. Um, and, and once we've sorted that out, it will become much easier to enforce the laws. I'm not saying we don't need new laws, but we already have plenty of good laws. Um, so we need to, to you know, to, to, to start enforcing them. And I think that would go a long way, you know, and um, I'm quite, um, uh, I'm quite... But that, that yeah, needs sorry. to be internationally, right? I mean, uh, because if you have a law in the UK or, I mean, laws are national, right? So the problem is international. That's what I got out of your book, right? So you can enforce a law. Yeah, it, 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 
it it is it absolutely the problem is international um but but the saying the problem is international is just a description it isn't a way of diagnosing the problem because um if you say well because the problem is international we need to wait for international action you're essentially giving panama a veto over all international policy against money laundering which is a real problem let alone giving the united states a veto which is also a problem um you know i think in the netherlands and in the uk um we're in the strong positions because we are both of our countries are a big international financial centers that we have a, a, a significant influence over international money flows and, and, and that gives us a you know a, a disproportionate influence over over the way the world economy works so i i think it's it's it, it's got to the point where it's foolish to wait now yeah, yeah. you but, know the but actually, you know the, when uh, so i mean the, the countries you mention are part of the problem right i mean well, if if i look so. at in the netherlands and if i look at switzerland i mean modern democracies even delaware in the us for for example are are part of the are part of the problem i mean right? absolutely i mean one thing i i think about this sometimes it, you know if you if you compare sort of previous scourges of humanity i mean kleptocracy is a is a is a massive it's a you know it is behind many of the most important and pressing problems facing humanity now whether that's you know inequality and terrorism and everything but this kleptocracy makes it all worse um if you look at a previous scourge of humanity one which has been in the headlines recently you know say the, the scourge of slavery when you know when 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 britain you know britain which had previously been you know the primary slave trading nation in the world decided that it was no longer be going to participate in it and move to abolish the slave trade we didn't wait for anyone else to come and help you just went and did it you know if it's it's the the best time to do the right thing is right now so you know the right thing is to abolish kleptocracy so you shouldn't wait for other people to come and do that for you you should do it because it's the right thing you know if you're not you know and so i think it it's yeah i mean if the argument is that it will be ineffective to wait to ineffective to act unilaterally well i disagree um it, it that's just if if you if you reduce the amount of space for kleptocratic cash to move in that is that is an effective response if if the argument is that we are essentially missing out on the trade if we if we unilaterally withdraw from it then it's still the right thing to do because we shouldn't be involved in this trade anyway so i think from a practical and a moral standpoint there's no argument for delay um the time yeah, you're the, the time right. to act is now So, so um, I sensed at the beginning already that you were well. You you said at least you made a remark like nothing's changing, right? Uh, after your investigations, also your colleague. Um, so you know maybe uh, maybe a very straight Dutch kind of question, but uh, you know is there maybe not a political willingness to change this, or what is no, your I mean, view on that? I mean, there definitely isn't. As a, I'm, I'm working on a new book at the moment, and one of the stories I'm looking to tell in this new book is, is this curious and slightly niche story of what's called the Scottish Limited Partnership. And the Scot, the Scottish Limited Partnership is a, you know, a, a particular kind of corporate structure which was essentially only really used to to facilitate agricultural tenancies in Scotland for a hundred years, and then it was discovered by Eastern European money launderers. Um, and became the vehicle of choice for moving money via, particularly via bank accounts in the Baltic states. In you know, in thousands upon thousands of them were were created, having previously been you know only a few hundred of them over a hundred years. Um, 
you know, you know the big the Danske Bank bank fraud, the Moldova bank fraud, you know, huge, all the laundromats, it's always Scottish limited partnerships. They're a gigantic problem. They were identified in 2015. It would be unbelievably simple to solve the problem. You know, it, it, it would be, it, you know, the tiniest piece of legislation, the problem would be solved. But there is a concern in the UK that if we bring in extra regulations on limited partnerships, then the fund industry will leave the UK and go to Luxembourg. Um, and therefore, nothing has happened. And the, essentially, the argument is, well, OK, so 250 billion euros got stolen from the former Soviet Union, laundered via Danske Bank and ended up God knows where. But we can't have the fund industry go to Luxembourg. You know, so yes, you're absolutely right. There's no political will because the people who all that money is stolen from, whether that's in Ukraine or Russia or Azerbaijan or Kazakhstan, the people that money is stolen from, they don't get to vote in the UK. And I and I see the same dynamic happening in 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 the Netherlands, and in and in Spain and in other countries which have been you know big sort of centres in Lisbon as well, centres for for kleptocratic cash. Let alone in the United States, you know, you try and say to politicians in Nevada that they have to restrict regulations around shell companies. They say, well, where's the money going to come from? You know, how do, how are we going to you know, fund our, our roads and so on. And, and it's, a, it's a real challenge. You know, You're the, giving me a bridge here because um, Brian and I discuss this topic very often. And you said, you know, uh, in Holland, absolutely right. You know, is there a political willingness? We've had this debate forever where they said, well, if we become tighter on, you know, the whole thing with trusts, etc., the business will move elsewhere or connected to the trust is a lot of, you know, legal services that we then miss, and all of this uh, humbug. True as it might be, same as with slave trade, if something is just not right, you should just not do it, because you will, you know, if you stop one thing, you will open up another source of decent income and, and revenue. Talking about political willingness, though, I can see our politicians now literally already sweating on television when the topic comes up because they know that the people have headed up to here. Uh, we know that we're going to pay for all the rescue packages for the, from the corona crisis, etc. And people are really, really upset that it's always the sort of mid-range of the economy that pays and that we're sick and tired of trusts and kleptocrats getting away with stuff. What is your take then on today's situation? Because I see that, I see that, I think that the willingness politically with the voters increases to do something about it. On the other hand, I just come back from a presentation at the Dutch Business Radio, and we already see that the people who are incredibly rich are using this crisis to make themselves even richer because they're buying up property in San Francisco at reduced prices. What is your uh, take on the current sort of time zone sentiment we're in and what will the impact be on willingness to do something about it or on events happening? Uh, I mean, it's a really interesting question. We saw exactly the same dynamic after the financial crisis in 2007 to eight, when um, governments responded to it by um, opening new loopholes for the super rich to try and attract them to their economies to support their economies and bring in money i mean you know so many so many countries i mean not notably um malta cyprus and portugal started making a lot of money out of selling visas and passports but not only them i mean other other people doing it as well the united states got very heavily involved in this trade too um so it is a it is a very difficult thing to resist 
when there's a crisis if if a if a, a lawyer for wealthy people comes to you and says well if you just tweak this law and change this then all of my clients will move to your country and 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 that will be lots of money for your top end restaurants and so on it's a difficult thing to resist um but i i also think it you know that there is also a um a a moment of opportunity as well i think that this this public anger over people who 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 cheat who break the rules and who who freeload on civilization i think this public anger which we which we've which we saw after the last financial crisis that we're seeing to a certain extent today as well um this can be mobilized and as a way for driving change to force you know other countries to do the right thing so i i don't know i don't think that the, the the decision is made i think that this is still hanging in the balance it could go either way um you know maybe this will be the opportunity as it was after world war 2 for a new and fairer system to be built for a while um you know i certainly hope so i'm an optimist I'm, i i think that it's you know it it's it's possible that that the right thing will will end up being done that's what i hope anyway all right yeah. Hey, um, Oliver, um, this is um, a lot of our listeners are uh, fintech enthusiastic people or from the financial services sector. And I understand now that transparency of ownership of assets is, you know, a key to a solution, right? Um, And basically, we need to understand who owns what. Now, nowadays, we have data on everyone and everything, right? So if we could combine that with legislation... Would that be maybe a, a, a possible direction for a solution if we use tech? Yeah, I mean, it, it could be. Um, you know, I'm not, you know, tech is just a tool. Um, it can be used for good or bad, like any tool. Um, you know, it's about making sure that the right regulation is built up around it and it's pointing in the right direction. I mean, I'm, I I think that what we, what we need to make sure is that, that, um, anonymity is provided for people who deserve it so if someone is has genuine fear for their safety whether from a you know if someone is is a is a wife who has fled a a, a, you know an abusive marriage and has a genuine fear for her safety she needs to be sure of her anonymity Um, and anyone who needs it should be able to receive it but at the moment we have a system whereby you gain anonymity if you can afford it not if you deserve it um so if we could legislate for anonymity, then then otherwise you could have a you know a default of transparency, and I think that that would that would 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 make it you know very straightforward. I mean I'm I'm nervous of saying that tech is the solution because I I, I don't I don't see that it's anything other than a than a sophisticated publishing no. platform. Sure, part it, it could help with the resources problem immensely, obviously. Um. Yeah, and crawl down. I mean, all those uh, all those LTDs, all those shell companies. I mean, they use uh, 10, 15 maybe, right, to uh, to come to the ultimate beneficiary owner. I mean, to crawl back on all those wow. companies, right? You can use Boston technology. Exactly. Well, just look at the problems banks have with regular KYC on business customers, where they have to do that in a positive sort of way, eh? find out like who's behind all the documents. It's it's a very tough thing to do. But you were touching on something, the transparency and be, you know, that if you're threatened, you should uh, be entitled to this. Um, I can also imagine that not everybody was a happy reader of your book. Have you ever been uh, feeling uh, unhappy or um, unsafe uh, throughout your work? Uh, I mean, I used to, before I wrote about financial crime, I I was uh, briefly a war reporter. 
So I felt, oh, yeah. I mean, I felt quite unsafe doing that. Um, you know, this, I, this is, it, it's different. It's not really comparable. I, I get uh, threatening letters from lawyers telling me that I've, I've, you know, defaming someone. And, and if I continue to write about them, I'll, you know, be taken to court. So, so that's annoying. Um, but it's not, I haven't felt a physical threat. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a firm believer in, in um, not really worrying about things that you can't change. Um, so, well, here's you know, yeah, I mean, very important. there's nothing, I mean, if people are, if people get cross about what I write, then there's nothing I can do about that, really. Uh, no. So I just carry no. on. I think that's a very fair stance. Now, besides your, your um, obviously this writing about money laundering has taken your whole life in a particular direction. Is like money laundering, financial fraud, is that going to be like the cause that you focus into? Because there are many, many ways not, that are not right in this world. Um, and is this going to be sort of a topic that you continue to explore? Or you talked about a next book, are you going to, tap into some other um, inequality issues? What is the big silver thread? Um, yeah, the next book I write will also be about financial crime, about regulatory capture, and and but with, with a very specific UK focus. Um, after that, I'm, I'm, I'm quite keen to keep working on international kleptocratic financial flows. I have a, a, a long-term goal um, of becoming very famous. So... I can I can pitch my agent a book about rugby and and I will be so famous that that people will buy it. That's my aim. Because um, <laughs> what I'd really like so to do you... is write a book about rugby. Are you, yeah. are you a rugby player yourself? No, no, I'm not. I'm, a, I'm but I'm from Wales and we love rugby here. So so, um, you know, I, I would like to travel the world watching rugby and find, a, you know, but, but I think say for I think I think, for example, if you were as famous as J.K. Rowling, um, you could write a book about anything and people would buy it. Uh, she can write a cookery book and we'll buy it. Well, I mean, you know, I, I don't think, I mean, I think it's just a question of having, you know, being the kind of person that if your name is on the front of a book, people would just buy it anyway. Um, that's the aim. So um, so in, in the long term, um, I would like to become so famous that I could write a book about rugby and people would read it. But yeah, in the meantime, I'm going to write about financial crime because it's, there's, the, the astonishing thing about financial crime is, is it's like um you know pulling on a bit of string that just never ends there's just so much of it out there that that you know you, you start off and think well you know this is going to be easy to investigate and then you you turn a corner and suddenly it's like you've entered this new labyrinth which just goes on and on and on and keeps multiplying there are so many iterations and it's developing so fast and it's so sophisticated and the law enforcement agencies are so outresourced that it just seems astonishing that everyone doesn't write about it i don't i don't it, it it seems so interesting to me that i don't understand why everyone isn't fascinated by it because it's so, you know it so are, are you doing any other things and besides writing books to you know to tackle uh, to stay in the rugby terms to tackle this issue or problem i mean do you uh, besides podcasts of course i mean do what, what what else are you doing well at the moment i'm not because my, my primary activity at the moment is homeschooling my children um because schools are still schools are still shut here but i'm um uh we we uh, with various friends we we i mean we put on events um to try and bring people together and to uh you know i i'm a firm believer that that 
you know, we we look at financial crime in silos. You know, we look at kleptocracy like one thing. We look at fraud like one thing. We look at them all separately, but they're all they're all one phenomenon. And they're all related. So I try and do that, and we we run um, these events called kleptocracy tours in London when we put, yeah, pe- put people on the bus. Yeah, I found and, you on YouTube. Yeah, so they're you know we're not doing them at the moment, obviously, they're but they're 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 yeah. quite fun. Um, yeah, it's just a question of trying to interest people in kleptocracy and financial crime in, in, in whatever way um, is obvious, and Possibly. you know. Um, and uh, there's a long way to go, you know. Um, kleptocracy is not yet the new rock and roll, um, but I'm working on it. And I think that... You- yeah, working on it. And thank you very much. And, and just to, to wrap it up again, because I do think that a lot of people are interested in it, because you write as if you're... You read your books as if you're... In the story, it reads like a thriller. So that's very important. You know, the style will engage a lot of people. But secondly, also, you know, one part of the, of, of the population is intrigued by the ridiculous wealth and the other one is intrigued by the crime. So I think you are uh, tapping into two worlds here. And um, thank you so very much for today. I hope that we can help you achieve your goal, that we cut this line to your rugby book by a little bit, and we're going to do our damnest with the promotion of the podcast. So thank you so very, very much, Oliver. Thank you very and much, Oliver. Well, 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 thank you. My, we're looking my, forward to hearing about the new book. My only concern is I did get a message on Twitter the other day from someone who said they'd read my book and it had given them lots of ideas, which made me a bit worried. Um, so please don't, if you do read the book, don't read of it as a how-to guide. It's supposed to be more of a warning no. how not to. It's not designed to give you a like guide yeah. to how to steal money. Put, put a warning on the next cover. But rest assured, we're looking forward to your next cover. Thank you, Oliver Bullough. Thank, thank you very thank much. Thank you very much. For people wanting to lecture themselves and others on illicit money flows, I would suggest to follow Oliver Bullough closely. Are you curious for the Music Weekend favorites of Oliver Bullough? Check them out on www.fintechcappuccino.com slash Oliver Oliver, thank you for joining us here at the Virtual Kitchen Table in the Fintech Cappuccino podcast. And thank you for listening to Fintech Cappuccino. Don't want to miss another cup? Subscribe to our podcast via Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. And please give us a like, a review. So many more Fintech Cappuccino lovers can find us then. And please join us again on Saturday mornings at 9. We'll have the coffee ready just the way you like it. Have Have a good weekend. Thank you so much. Thank you so very much. Keep a distance and stay close to each other. Be safe. Be safe.